This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. John Kay is a British historian with an international reputation for writing accessible biographies of India, the Far East, and China. In his new book, Himalaya, Exploring the Roof of the World, he presents us with a meticulously researched and very characterful history of one of the world's last great wildernesses, and in particular, of the bizarre discoveries and improbable achievements of its pioneers. But it's also the portrait of an area the size of Europe that continues to be riven by conflict and is under increasing environmental pressure. Throughout its history, it's mesmerised scholars and mystics, sportsmen and spies, mapmakers and pilgrims, all of whom have mingled with its farmers and traders on the roof of the world. Drawing on a lifetime of exploration and study of the area, John Kay makes the case that this is one of the most essential and endangered wonders of the world. Before we meet John, here's a clip of Nick Holbeck narrating the audiobook version of Himalaya. History has not been kind to Himalaya. Those acquainted with our spherical planet's most spectacular protuberance have been tempted to appropriate it. Buddhist India claimed Himalaya from the south, Islam put roots down in its western approaches, Mongols and Manchus rode in from the north, and from the east an irredentist China continues to engross what it prefers not to call Tibet. Empires have here collided, cultures clashed, surveyors staked out frontiers, hunters decimated the wildlife, and mountaineers bagged the peaks. Machinery is now gouging out the minerals. A jumble of borderlands and buffer states on the map, Himalaya is quite unlike, say, Amazonia, Australia, or most of the world's other distinctive ecozones. Another of them, Antarctica, when threatened by international rivalries in the 1950s, was demilitarized and apportioned into national study zones by mutual agreement. Himalaya, being no less fragile and just as globally significant, would benefit from a similar consensus, but it's unlikely to emerge. Antarctica has no history and no native Antarcticans. Himalaya has much history and many native Himalayans. The most we can hope for is a wider recognition of the region's physical integrity as the only high-altitude ecozone. The clashing of cultures, ideologies and empires on the roof of the world has long been matched by a comparable variety of competing reasons for taking Himalaya seriously. But in trying to do justice to all these interests, this book may seem as disjointed as the Himalayan skyline. It can't be helped. John Kay, welcome to My Life in Books. Thank you very much, Red. Nice to be here. The first thing that I found in reading your latest book is that I have been pronouncing Himalaya incorrectly all my life. Could you just tell us how we should be pronouncing the word and why? Uh, well, it, there's been a lot of debate about this. And in fact, the first ever meeting of the Himalayan Club in 1929, one of the first things they had to deal with is how to pronounce Himalayan or Himalayan. And the general consensus nowadays seems to be that uh, Himalaya, with a long first A, identifies uh, a region, whereas Himalayas is a, a collection of mountain ranges. Himalaya is a, obviously an anglicised pronunciation. The word Himalaya is actually from the Sanskrit. Uh, Hima means snow, and Alia means uh, a land, a region, an abode, a realm. So a realm, an abode of snow. Uh, and it refers not just to uh, one or two uh, distinct mountain regions, but, but to the whole of that kind of bruised area in the heart of Asia in a physical map. It's usually either purple or white, which is above 10,000 feet or 3,000 meters above sea level. So it's the 
highest kind of protuberance on the face of our planet. And it's a vast area, probably about two and a half thousand miles from east to west and about 500 from north to south. Uh, a lot of it is comprised by Tibet, but also all the surrounding uh, kingdoms and principalities uh, along the main Himalayan channel. We still use Himalayan for the adjective, Himalayan, obviously, and for Himalayas for the plural. But when referring to the whole area, it's called Himalaya, and it's pronounced like that. And it is a region that has been formed by plate tectonics. Its geology is actually that of a seabed. It is the world's highest seabed. Yes, I mean, an awful lot of, of what we know about the constitution of the Earth uh, was derived from discoveries in Himalaya. Himalaya being the sort of largest elevated zone on the planet uh, attracted quite a lot of attention from early times. But the main discoveries in terms of plate tectonics and so on came in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, it had been first been proposed by a German astrophysicist, really, in the 1920s, a man called Alfred Wegener, and, and he proposed the idea that continents did actually move or had actually moved and were actually still moving, and that the uplift of the Himalaya was the result of the most dramatic continental collision that had ever taken place. And that it's still ongoing, as indeed it is. Everest is growing a little bit taller every year by three or four centimetres. So discoveries made in Himalaya, and as you mentioned, particularly the existence, for instance, of marine species, marine fossils at immense altitudes. Even on the summit of Everest, they discovered little fossils of palm trees and of various sorts of weeds and even uh, of a few creatures. So that the whole of this area of Himalaya is actually being uplifted. At one time, it was at the base of a great sea, the Tethys Sea. Uh, and uh, this collision of the continents has pushed it up so that the earth crust is thicker in uh, Himalaya than anywhere else in the world. So a lot of uh, important geological discoveries were made as a result of uh, explorations in Himalaya, particularly this question of plate tectonics, how the continents and so on have been formed was um, a major discovery which was made thanks to what was becoming known about Himalaya. And as you say, a lot of the early exploration of the 19th century was driven by fossil hunters such as Hugh Falconer going out trying to fill in the gaps in human knowledge as to where we came from. And those early expeditions by the Royal Geographical Society and by amateurs really did fuel the public interest and, and led to more and more people going out and poking around. Yes, I mean, there were slight problems about being an explorer in Himalaya that most of the region was closed to foreigners throughout the 19th century. And it really was only open to easy or easier travel for non-Asiatics by the infamous Young Husband expedition of 1904 when a British-led army or small army force, about 3,000 men with machine guns and so on, fought their way from India, from Darjeeling in the north of Bengal, uh, across the Tibetan plateau to Lhasa and imposed a rather one-sided and punitive treaty on the Tibetans, which meant that uh, the British thereafter had some influence over t Tibetan politics and could gain permissions for mostly British travellers to explore the region. Uh, before that, you mentioned Hugh uh, Faulkner, who was a paleontologist. He was interested in fossils, and he was particularly interested in the origins of life on Earth and the development of life on Earth. He was a contemporary, indeed an acquaintance of Charles Darwin's, based in the northwest of India. He was actually originally a botanist, so he was kind of running an outstation of the botanical gardens in Calcutta, and there discovered extremely rich deposits of fossilised bones, particularly of 
he was particularly interested in the bones of animals that were extinct. In other words, a lot of these species that he was discovering no longer could be recognised in today's fauna. And he proposed uh, all sorts of theories about the development of species at the same time as Darwin was doing his own work on the subject. So Himalaya made quite an important contribution, not only to geology, but to studies of life on Earth. And as you say, unfortunately, not all the human interventions have been as benign or scientifically (laughs) driven. The area has been a contentious one between various empires for centuries. You mention the Young Husband expedition of 1904, which was all bound up in what was known as the Great Game between Russia and Britain for control of the area north of India. And, of course, there have also been Chinese incursions for many centuries, Sikh incursions, well, incursions from north, south, east and west as people try to control what is a vital trade route, but also what is a vital source of water. Yes, indeed. I mean, all all that is true. I think that Himalaya's fate has been that of being politically fragmented by incursions from outside from the very beginning of time, really. And as a result, today we have some difficulty in identifying Himalaya because it is so politically fragmented with uh, obviously India and China having major interests in the region but also all these lesser kingdoms like Bhutan, Nepal and Kashmir, all kind of nibbling away at this great uplifted area of our planet. And as you say, a lot of these attentions were not very welcome, really. Even today, I mean, it's it's appalling what's happening to Himalaya as, as a result simply of political encroachment and, of course, things like tourism and mountaineering and so on. So these were all issues which I was quite interested in exploring in the book. And quite a lot of it is devoted to ancient or even prehistory. And quite a lot of it is devoted to current history, to what's happening there now. Yes. I mean, you point out that it has always been a flashpoint between different religions and all the major world religions rub up against each other in the area. But it is also a fantastic source of resources. I'd never realised that 35% of the world's population relies on water that originates from the Himalaya, mostly from the 50,000 glaciers that the area contains. Yes, I mean, this is crucial not so much for the Himalayan peoples, but for all the peoples who live down river of Himalaya. Uh, the major rivers uh, that drain the Himalayan plateau are obviously those into South Asia, the Indus, the Ganges, the Brahmaputra and so on, and also those of Southeast Asia, particularly the Mekong, the Salween and even the upper reaches of the Yangtze. And the enormous numbers of people, of civilizations that have been dependent on these, it's not just the water that comes down from Himalaya, but also a lot of the soil in which, for instance, rice is grown in the Mekong Delta is actually washed down from Himalaya. So the rivers bring down a lot of the uh, productivity of all the lands of northern South Asia and Southeast Asia, utterly dependent on what they call the Himalayan Reservoir or the Himalayan Hindu Kush Reservoir. That's the glaciers particularly and the, and the snowfields and the permafrost of Himalaya itself. I mean, this is fine, except that uh, nowadays uh, rivers are also seen as a major source of power, particularly hydroelectric power, and water is in very short supply in a lot of the surrounding lands. And so enormous dams are being endlessly projected and now built and now actually operating from one end of Himalaya to the other. So the Indus in northern Pakistan is being dammed for one of the biggest dams ever constructed at this very moment. And at the other end of the Himalayan chain, the Zangpo, that's the Tibetan river, which becomes the Brahmaputra in India, that too is being dammed with a series of dams which will produce more electricity than 
the Yangtze Three Gorges Dam, which will mean the waters of these rivers being redirected from the Brahmaputra, which flows through Assam in India, to northern China, where they have a desperate shortage of water. So the water is crucial, but very much endangered by all this development. I mean, obviously other things contribute, but the, but the dams are one of the real, real problems. And really, the, the dangers as well as the rewards for greater hydroelectricity uh, need to be studied much more carefully because this is a very sensitive area seismically, very prone to earthquakes from one end of Himalaya to the other. So the dangers are enormous, but uh, at the moment the dam builders seem to be able to do pretty much what they want. Well, as you have already identified, it, it is a politically, ethnically and culturally fragmented area. So getting everybody round the table to draw up legislation for a common good is something that seems impossible to do. And yet you argue that if we ignore the crisis that is looming, then it will have serious consequences for the wider world. Yes, of course. I mean, I've forgotten how many billion people it is that depend on the Himalayan reservoir, but I think it's something like three or four billion people. Uh, so, uh, yes, it's uh, politically very, very uh, sensitive. What happens in Himalaya has repercussions way beyond. But my point really is that we, we need to do something about this. And the parallel I try to draw is with other unique eco-zones. Himalaya is the only high-altitude eco-zone on our planet. And it deserves the same sort of protection as we currently extend to, or try to extend to, Antarctica, for instance. Antarctica is an equally sensitive environment and might well have been as heavily exploited as Himalaya has been if it hadn't been for a series of agreements in the mid-20th century, whereby all those powers who had an interest, a scientific, political interest in Antarctica got together to agree on a regime of restricting settlements and pollution and so on. And so any extraneous materials or rubbish or whatever that goes into Antarctica has to be re-exported. It can't be left there. And the whole of Antarctica is depoliticized, demilitarized and so on. We need some sort of agreement, ideally, which covers the whole of Himalaya in the same way. But it's more tricky because, well, in the Antarctic, there are no natives, there are no Antarcticans. And, and of course, in Himalaya, there are quite a lot of peoples who are involved. And it's an area that has beguiled travellers through the centuries. And you have mined the accounts of countless people who have journeyed there. And what really comes through is just how seduced they, and I think you, have been by what is a unique and and beautiful area that is very spiritual. There are prayer flags and monasteries and beautiful vistas. And we find ourselves questioning whether those who actually live there sees through the same eyes as the travellers who are passing through. Yes, I mean, that, that raises the interesting question, which uh, several uh, travellers in Tibet have raised from time to time, is to what extent the belief systems, and, and in particular Vajrayana Buddhism, uh, Tibetan Buddhism, has been influenced by the terrain. In other words, I think it was the great... Italian uh, Tibetologist and Buddhist uh, Giuseppe Tucci, who travelled in in, uh, Western Tibet in the 1930s, who suggested that it was the ferociousness of the and the beauty of the setting which explained, uh, to some extent, the Tibetans' love of of mysticism, of miracles, and the obsession with uh, demons uh, and extrasensory activities that the scenery, that the location, in a sense, inspired these beliefs. And uh, I think a, a lot of the attraction of Tibet for foreigners was this extraordinary, um, what Tucci called Lamaism, what we now call Tibetan Buddhism, which is so such a unique religion in itself, but also which depends so heavily on kind of um, mystic engagements, on uh, miracles, on uh, unlikely feats of endurance and which gives to the mountains an extraordinary power. Uh, Nearly all the peaks in Himalaya, the the highest peaks, 
are not only reckoned to be the residents of deities, they are themselves considered gods, deities. And so uh, pilgrimage to the most revered sites, and particularly the mountain peaks, is a defining characteristics of not just of Tibetan Buddhism, but also of all the other religions that are followed within Himalaya, particularly, of course, Hinduism and uh, even Islam to some extent. So this reverence for the environment is not something that the outside world is trying to impose on Himalaya. It is something which Himalaya itself has long recognised. And, uh, you know, the idea of climbing mountains, for instance, never really occurred to the Tibetans. They they thought the mountains were so sacred they should process round them in pilgrimage, but not attempt to get on top of them. The, 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 The sort of foreigner's obsession with conquering peaks was totally alien to them. They they respected the scenery, the environment and so on so much that they saw attempts to climb mountains as in a way disrespectful. Well, as you say, it has acted as a magnet to some of the most colourful explorers who have walked the earth over the past couple of centuries. And after the break, we will be encountering one of the most colourful resplendent in a tartan turban. Share your views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844-122-1111. Welcome back to My Life in Books. This week, I'm in conversation with John Kay about his new book, Himalaya, and some of the very colourful characters who have explored that region. John, one of the most outlandish explorers of the area was a man called Alexander Gardner, who was very active at the beginning of the 19th century and was an American mercenary resplendent in a tartan turban. Yes, in fact, that was a title of a previous book of mine published about five years ago called The Tartan Turban, The Search for Alexander Gardner. His was such an interesting story and it was actually so difficult to try and disentangle the facts from the fiction that it merited its own book. Uh, Gardner was of Scots descent, but his father had moved to North America, and so he was an American and a soldier. He ended up serving in the armies of various Indian and Central Asian potentates, including Ranjit Singh, the Sikh Maharaja of the Punjab. Uh, and Gardner was a colonel in his service, uh, in charge of artillery. Um, but before that, he had performed the most amazing journey, which always intrigued me, and which a lot of people thought was, if not um, exaggerated, uh, actually fictionalised, when he did a sort of circuit of the whole of what is Western Himalaya, up through Afghanistan and round into what is now uh, Xinjiang in western China and then round to Kashmir and Ladakh and back down into what is now northern Pakistan. So he did a complete circuit of the western Himalaya at a very early time when uh, practically nothing was known about this region. He subsequently, as I say, served under Ranjit Singh as a colonel of artillery and then when Ranjit Singh's empire collapsed in the 1840s, he transferred his allegiance to the new uh, Maharaja of Jammu and Kashmir, and spent his retirement there. And uh, although very few accounts of uh, Gardner from people who've met him are available there, he did meet quite a few, mostly British visitors and so on, who actually sought him out. He'd become a bit of a legend, this extraordinary character who wore his tartan turban and came to be an American and had had this extraordinary life as an adventurer, mostly in Central Asia. Uh, And they wrote down his reminiscences of his travels and so on. And it's only from their pens that we actually know about Gardner's life and uh, his achievements. But as a traveller and explorer, I found him absolutely fascinating. And as a mercenary at a very kind of critical time in the history of what was then called the Northwest Frontier. He clearly has fascinated you for a long time. He he makes appearances in your 1977 and 79 books. <laughs> yes. And I, he comes across as, as a real rough, tough 
horribly battle-scarred man who, against all the odds and beggaring belief in many, many ways, survived into a, a ripe old age. Why do you think it took 150 years for somebody to write a biography of him? Yes, I mean, the materials, as I say, are quite hard to locate. He, he didn't write very much himself, but he did apparently dictate his life story to anyone who was prepared to listen to it, really. So very often dealing not with what he himself recorded, but with what others recorded of him. And you have to cast your net quite wide because he'd served in so many different parts of the region. Uh, and so many different rulers that you're kind of piecing his career together most of the time. His travels are equally disjointed. Uh, you know, he, it's, at places they're quite consistent. His crossing of the Pamir Mountains, for instance, is very dramatic and easy to follow. But then suddenly he'll disappear off any known map into regions of which one, one can only be a little doubtful whether he actually went there himself or whether he obtained uh, accounts from people who had been there. A bit like Marco Polo. I mean, we're never quite sure with Marco Polo whether everything he has to say is the result of his own experiences or whether he was adopting other people's accounts. So there's, there's the issue of kind of plagiarism that invention has to be faced up to when you're writing a biography of someone like Gardner. Uh, and, and also, there's some very shady periods in his career when he certainly was involved in activities on behalf of one ruling prince or another that were very unsavoury indeed. And uh, he certainly had blood on his hands and certainly he was a man of few scruples, put it that way. So he's not always an inviting subject for a biographer and certainly it's a lot of hard slog involved. I was very fortunate in that, unusually for this book, I had the use of some researchers, which is not usually how I work. Gardner's story is very much in the vein of your 1982 book, Eccentric Travellers, in which you write short biographies of seven men who were driven to explore remote parts of the world by their thirst for travel. And the one who really stood out for me was James Holman, who travelled further than the lot of them, despite being, or maybe because of being, blind. Could you introduce us to him? Yes, it's James Holman is one of my absolute favourites. At the age of 25, he was a lieutenant in the Royal Navy and uh, living a perfectly normal kind of life. And then we don't know exactly why, but somehow he lost his sight entirely. So until the age of 25, he'd been sighted. He'd been, he'd, he, he had a rich kind of visual archive already. Um, and then suddenly he could see nothing. Um, and uh, he had to be retired from the Navy and undergo all sorts of medical um, treatments and so on to try and restore his sight. But it was never successful. And so he resigned himself to uh, a life of, he thought, of, of boredom. And then he suddenly decided he would, he would travel. That The fact that he couldn't see should be no disadvantage to a traveller who had a rich kind of visual archive. And he made a short journey to the Mediterranean. He spoke no foreign languages. Uh, he he travelled without a, a servant or without a companion at all, and yet still seemed to manage quite well. And... That was really just the beginning of what was then the rest of his life was spent on the road, travelling. Uh, he wanted to go everywhere, he wanted to see everything, and he always maintained that the fact that he couldn't actually see anything at all was an advantage because his, his senses were sharpened uh, and he could present a more convincing picture of where he was from the senses that he did have without over-reliance on the visual on, on sight, which he thought that was a fault of other travellers. And you quote something that Holman says, which I think is a real insight into his character, and that is, the desire for locomotion is for him a new sense, a compensating principle for the loss of his sight. And he was a remarkably resilient and optimistic and resourceful man. Yes, absolutely amazing, absolutely amazing. So after his, this first kind of trial run, run in uh, Europe, he set off for Russia uh, aboard a ship 
which it was involved in a collision in the mouth of the Thames as it left the Bajaz. And um, he found himself in the unusual situation of having to pilot the ship himself, although he couldn't see at all where he was going, relying entirely on directions from other members of the crew. And that sort of kind of helped his confidence a bit. And then when uh, they sailed to St. Petersburg and he went ashore there, and there he met up with another English traveller whose sight was perfect, but who was completely deaf. And so James Holman, this ex-naval lieutenant, and this companion set off to travel from St. Petersburg to Moscow, Holman being able to see nothing whatsoever, and his companion, whom he never identifies, being totally deaf, um, and uh, became quite a quite a star turn on the road to Moscow. Then in Moscow they split up, and Holman decided to continue on to... He wanted to, to see if he could reach Siberia. And so he embarked on one of the longest transcontinental journeys on record, right across Russia to the Pacific coast. Uh, uh, and it was brutal countryside that he was crossing. Yes. He was actually stopped by another famous eccentric <laughs> traveller known as John Dundas Cochran, who was really trying to do the same sort of thing. He was trying to walk around the world. Homer was known as the blind traveller and Cochrane was known as the pedestrian traveller because he always walked. He said he never accepted a, a lift or rode a horse. Uh, and Cochrane was very dismissive of this blind Homer trying to challenge his own journey across to Siberia. But as Homer rightly said, that um, since Cochrane has found nothing of interest to report in the way of uh, the scenery, it didn't matter that he couldn't actually see it. And he relied much more on human contact. Uh, he uh, made friends everywhere. I think being unsighted meant that he attracted a certain amount of interest wherever he went and uh, probably had a more relaxed relationship with the local people than uh, a sighted traveller would have done. And he comes across as rather charming as well, slightly yes. sli- slightly self-deprecating, but uh, somebody who clearly made friends very easily. Yes, yes, no, definitely. And, um, you know, he, I mean, being blind, sometimes he was actually allowed to live in the women's quarters because um, uh, he was blind. He was thought to be no threat to the female population. And he seems to have got on very well with the ladies wherever he went. Uh, he loved a bit of society. He was a bit of a snob, but a lot of people were in those days. And he, he's in no way embarrassed by his, what he always calls his deprivation, his lack of sight. But he actually takes advantage of it. He makes use of it to, as I say, win friends and be accepted and to be able to take liberties, which a sighted person perhaps wouldn't be able to do. Anyway, this was a journey to Siberia, and he duly reached Kamchatka on the Pacific coast and then was turned around and suspected of being a spy um, and actually escorted back to Moscow by uh, the equivalent of the spy service of the Tsarist regime. And so they have the unusual situation of a, of a blind spy being being escorted out of the country. And he returned to Britain and immediately uh, embarked on uh, another series of mammoth journeys, but mostly by sea, to pretty well everywhere in the world. I mean, there were very few countries that he didn't uh, visit. Well, yes, you, you say he travelled over a quarter of a million miles, visited 200 different cultures on every one of the populated continents. It, it's an incredible feat for a man who was travelling on foot or under sail between 1819 and 1851, and, and he became a best-selling author during his life. Yes, that, I mean, that, that was the other amazing thing. He, he was a prolific writer. I mean, he never undertook a journey without uh, producing a narrative of it. And uh, he became quite a celebrity, um, he, when he was in Britain, he, he was given the use of a grace and favour residence at Windsor, just outside Windsor Castle. And it was there that he wrote up his travels. And he was a good writer, and he never invites self-pity or uh, excites self-pity at all. Um, he is uh, very matter-of-fact. Actually, one of his most interesting accounts is of an island in the Gulf of Guinea in West Africa called Fernando Po, which was grabbed, really, by the British Navy as a post to which 
freed slaves could be sent and could set up a colony. And a Royal Navy ship was sent out to Fernando Pei on, with James Holman being one of those attached to it. And so he witnessed the founding of a colony in this very remote part of West Africa. And his account of that is really, really interesting. It's less about being a blind traveller, much more about uh, how uh, a very primitive society uh, was being introduced to novelties like the telephone and so on. Um, so his work probably deserves a much bigger readership than it had at the time and certainly than it has today. Well, yes, as you say, unfortunately, even within his own lifetime, he fell into obscurity, partly, I suppose, because of the stigma of blindness and also the suspicion that, well, if a blind man can do it, how difficult can it be? But you rediscovered him and actually have helped create a legacy that I think James Holman would be very proud of because an author called Jason Roberts read your account of James Holman's life. He then set out to write a longer biography of James Holman called A Sense of the World, which was picked up by the San Francisco Lighthouse for the Blind, who have now established an annual award to fund three blind adventurers in their own quest to change the perception of blindness and explore the world. You must be quite proud of that. Well, I mean, he should be proud of that. That's absolutely brilliant. I'm, I'm delighted to hear about that. I mean, Holman's contention all along is that uh, a blind person is not incapacitated in any way. It actually, his, his capacity is increased. Uh, by the fact that he can't see, because he's not so reliant on visual observation as other people, uh, and is much more sensitive to touch and smell and uh, sound and so on. And it seems to me that uh, someone without sight and willing to take a certain amount of um, risk is in a very advantageous situation when it comes to travel, particularly in unexpected parts of the world too. So good for the people in San Francisco. Yes, good, 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 good for them. That's wonderful. There's a great vogue for repeating great travellers' journeys. Uh, I'd love to hear of someone who wants to uh, replicate some of his journeys, particularly the one across um, Russia, and someone who is unsighted. That would make it a fascinating book and account. Well, you're giving me ideas for maybe a year off. Who knows? <laughs> Eccentric Travellers is one of several of your books that have been recorded in audio, either by the RNIB Library in Britain or the CELA Library in Canada for the benefit of blind and partially sighted readers. And after the break, we'll come on to talk about the commercial audiobook version of Himalaya, which has just been made. This is My Life in Books on AMI-audio with Red Sale. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to My Life in Books. This week, I'm in conversation with history writer John Kay, who has been a full-time author since 1973 and is an expert in the areas of India, China and the Far East. John, you also were a broadcaster making radio programmes for the BBC between 1975 and 1995. So clearly you see the great value of the spoken word as far as educating and expanding people's horizons. Yes, I, I mean, I, I enjoyed uh, broadcasting, as you say. I, I think I made something like, well, certainly more than 100 mostly documentaries, but also uh, dramatised narratives are in the uh, 1970s and 80s and 90s. Curiously, the eccentric travellers you mentioned, I mean, that that book is actually the book of a radio series. There was a series of radio programmes, each, each of them devoted to a different eccentric traveller, and it, it morphed into a book subsequently, and it was followed by another one called Explorers Extraordinary, which is the same sort of format. And then I also did a lot of documentaries on that part of the world, South Asia, Southeast Asia and China. 
And I was quite sad to leave the world of broadcasting, but it is quite disruptive if you're also trying to write a book, as you have to suddenly rush off and record another programme. And also, I live in the north of Scotland, and we don't have any recording studios within reasonable distance. It always meant going to London. And after sort of 20 years of doing this, I I decided to concentrate much more on books, which is what I've been doing for the last 30 years, I suppose. But I appreciate audio books and so on. Um, My wife actually introduced me to audio books when five years ago she lost both kidneys and uh, survived courtesy of uh, dialysis. And dialysis involves a lot of time in hospital or at home sitting uh, on a a machine. And she uh, discovered that the best way to occupy her mind during these long periods of dialysis, it's every other day you have to do it, was to listen to books. Um, And uh, she has been listening to audio books ever since. The the whole business of audio books has changed an awful lot. I remember some of my first books, you know, giving permission for them to be used as large print or uh, for audio purposes for the blind or for braille. Um, But uh, subsequently, I mean, in the last 10 years or so, it's become quite a big business. And now I always ask my publishers to make sure when they're licensing the rights in a book that they also contact the audio book market and make sure that they have access. And also uh, authors now get paid a bit for audio books, which they didn't used to. So uh, the market has changed, and it's now quite a big deal, I think. Um, uh, Amanda, my wife, she she eventually got a, a kidney transplant, and so she doesn't have to sit on a dialysis machine anymore. But she's a great walker, and she seldom sets off for a walk without earphones on and uh, an audio book on her phone in her pocket. So we're quite enthusiastic about, sorry to say, about audio books. Are there plans for any more of your books to be recorded for the commercial market? Or um... yes, I, I'm I'm pressing for this very much, and um, and I hope more of them will be. Uh, certainly, Himalaya has gone straight to audio books, and I hope that the Tartan Turban, the Alexander Gardner book, will too. I mean, I can see that the, the main appeal of audiobooks is in terms of uh, fiction, obviously. Non-fiction, which is what I write almost entirely, lends itself less well to audiobooks because it's very difficult to find your way back into uh, a reference or whatever in an audiobook. It's much easier with a, a printed book and you've got a, an index and so on to uh, find your way back into the book. Um, and so for for people who need to, who think they're going to be referring to a book as well as just listening to it and enjoying it, uh, I think the printed book will always win out probably. Um, but that doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't have audio versions of most printed books. And, and we, I'm, I'm amazed how much there is. I use, uh, for research purposes, I sometimes use something called archive.org who seem to have um, digitised pretty well everything that's ever been published or are in the process of doing so. Uh, And so I can access works which are uh, are not available even in printed version. And what happens very often is that the the way of reproducing these things for the screen is not always very reliable. And sometimes you come across a book where three quarters of the text is just unreadable for for some reason or other. And that that is the despair of a researcher suddenly find three quarters of the book he wants to study isn't there. But then I suddenly discovered that everything on archive.org is also on audio. and and, And sure enough, there was a little headphone sign down in the corner of the screen which I'd never noticed and you just press and there was someone reading the entire text so audio materials are are now I think far more available than even quite serious researchers like me realize Uh, and uh, it's a whole new world well it's wonderful to know that something that was originally developed to help print disabled readers access work is now so useful in the mainstream John, I hope you'll stay with us and after the break, share some of the books that have inspired you with the books of your life. Please do. Catch up with this and every episode of My Life in Books by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books. More from Red Sale and his guest in a moment. 
welcome back to My Life in Books. And now it's time to share the books of John Kay's life. John, was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? It was a book published in the late 1890s and written by a man called Joshua Slocum and it's called Sailing Alone Around the World. Slocum was the first man, well, first of all, he was a Canadian. Uh, he was born in Nova Scotia, although most of his life ashore was actually spent in New England. He was the first man ever to sail alone around the world. He not only sailed alone around the world, uh, he also built the boat in which he sailed alone around the world. Um, he had a career as a merchant seaman, really, um, and had already been around the world in larger vessels. Uh, several times before approaching retirement he acquired this sloop that was sitting in a field outside New Bedford in New England and was about to go to the wreckers yard. Uh, he, he fell in love with this little vessel and decided he would rebuild it and uh, then would embark on this incredible journey uh, around the world on his own. He wrote one or two other books uh, about other voyages but this is just a story of his voyage around the world, which took about four years. To me, uh, I loved it because I liked the way he, he wrote, and also because, in a sense, his voyage around the world became a sort of literary pilgrimage. His route was dictated, to some extent, where other famous writers had travelled. So, first of all, he set off from New Bedford, which is where Herman Melville had launched his career as an author. He followed Melville's route, actually, into the Pacific after crossing the Atlantic and then being shooed away from the Mediterranean by pirates. He re-embarked and crossed the Atlantic back again to uh, the coast of Brazil, went down the coast of Brazil, uh, through the Straits of Magellan by Cape Horn in the extreme south of South America, and then embarked on the Pacific. And this was pretty much the route that um, Herman Melville had taken uh, and on which he drew for his Moby Dick. Uh, as soon as Oakham was in the Pacific, he started looking for other literary connections. He landed on the island of Juan Fernandez, uh, which is where Alexander Selkirk, the original Robinson Crusoe, had been marooned for four years in the late 18th century, and then set off across the Pacific for, I think it was something like 300 days uh, it took him, um, to Samoa, where Robert Louis Stevenson had retired and then from Australia returned across the Indian Ocean to Cape Town in South Africa and then round up the African coast back to uh, New England. As I say, it took him about four years and then he wrote this account of it and I loved it because I loved the way he wrote and I loved the fact that he just went ahead with this enterprise with really very little backing and very little prospect of actually success but he was successful and the book itself became a bestseller and has seldom been out of print since so um, Joshua Slocum sailing alone around the world I mean it's full of dramas and uh, excitements and um, wonderful observations it's a wonderful read and is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread yes there is there are several um, but most of them are by the same author one of my favourite authors for many years has been a man called R.K. Narayan, an Indian writer who wrote in English and produced a series of novels all set in the same little community, the same little town in South India. R.K. Narayan was born in Madras but spent a lot of his early life in Mysore and the fictional town of Malgudi where all his novels are set uh, is almost certainly modelled on Mysore. He produced a series of novels, and uh, they're, they're all quite short, and they're very easy to read. He never uses uh, complicated constructions or long words where he doesn't have to. And it's a kind of minute observation of life in a small uh, South Indian town. He's a very simple writer, really, but uh, totally wonderful. Uh, the most popular of his books is a book called The Guide. I don't want to spoil the story for anyone by relating it here um, but it's a superb uh, creation and it almost makes me weep even when I think of it. Another of his best books is The English Teacher which is about a young man who loses his wife after four or five years. Um, she dies and 
uh, he then is distraught and tries to rediscover contact with her uh, by going to a medium, to seances. So the book is really about uh, how we deal with bereavement and um, grief. And finally, is there a book you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? Yes, I'm, I'm actually I'm reading it for the second time. This is a, a novel by a, a Kashmiri writer called Basharat Pier. And the book is called Curfewed Night. It was published about two years ago, I think. And it's a book about Kashmir today and uh, about the terrible repression and uh, dissent that's been simmering in that beautiful valley uh, ever since the later 1980s. Uh, Pierre, when he left uh, school, he became a journalist and moved to Delhi. And then he returned to Kashmir after this uh, intifada, this uh, rebellion against Indian rule, got underway in the late 1980s. And uh, there have been a lot of books on uh, contemporary Kashmir, and most of them are very depressing reading. Uh, Basharat Pia is a brilliant writer. Of all the books on Kashmir that are around today, I would strongly recommend Curfew's Night. A beautifully, beautifully written and beautifully told. John Kay, thank you so much for sharing your passion for literature for travel and, of course, for the Himalaya with us today and for being a guest on the show. Thank you very much indeed, Red, and um, uh, I've enjoyed it very much, and I hope I haven't banged on too for too long. <laughs> not in the least, not in the least. That's it for this edition of My Life in Books. Thanks again to my guest, John Kay, and to the show's producer, Sean Priest. He and I are already working on the next episode. So don't forget to tune in, same time, same place, to hear another top author talking books. In the meantime, if you'd like to drop us a line or leaf through our back catalogue, here's how. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favourite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this programme by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. The Walrus is Canada's conversation and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.